0: Well, good morning, Door Creek. Good to be together on this beautiful, can I say it? November, hello. Wow, was that fast. November day. If you're a guest here, my name's Mark. And if uh, you are one of the recipients of the note from Mark, I just want to just say thank you for the love and compassion that you have shown to our family. You heard the news that our, uh, um, you know, our dog, Lovey, this yellow lab who uh, celebrated Halloween early, we had dinner guests over on Thursday night, I think it was, or Wednesday night, whenever it was, and all of a sudden I heard a thud. I Thought, oh, that's not good. I run into our bedroom, and there is like, there's the big yellow bowl, and it's on the ground, and then there's like wrappers, and I realize, uh-oh, Lovey got into the Halloween candy with a very discriminating palette. So all the Whoppers were untouched. I don't like them either. That malted thing doesn't work for me. All 36 Reese's peanut butter cups, gone. So I was moved as that note went out on Friday afternoon. And within minutes, the calls came in. That's what they told me. The calls started coming in to command and control. The receptionist, they're concerned about your dog, Mark. You obviously don't owe my dog. Because she didn't burp. I mean, she's fine. But I was a little concerned that nobody thought about that our big candy cache was completely devastated, (laughs) decimated. I came to the office today thinking there's going to be piles of candy. There wasn't. (laughs) Anyways, it's all good. So if you don't get the notes from Mark, it's because we don't have your information. A communication card, it's right there in your bulletin. Tear it off, let us know who you are so you can better understand what's going on around here. One of the, the great things we talked about last week was hearing through the cards that came in, five people just recently trusted Christ, placed their faith in Christ, began their journey of a personal relationship with God through Christ. And so we rejoice. That's what it's all about. Yep. So uh, we're going through um, 1 Corinthians, and we're coming to this wild subject of food sacrifice to idols. And it is going to be one of those things where you go, ah, it's just not in my radar, it's not on my radar, it's not in my thinking, what is this about? So to get in this food, sub, uh, this food subject of food uh, sacrifice to idols, I want us to think back to the rights that are ours as citizens of this country. So in 1776, right, July 4th, our founding fathers wrote these infinite, in, um, just incredibly important words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Right there in the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence. So we know these rights are, are unalienable. That is, they are rights that are impossible to take away, and they're things that we don't give up. And so our rights are spelled out some of them, a lot of them, important ones in our amendments to the Constitution. The first 10, part of the original draft of the Constitution. The next 17 in the following years. So the freedom of religion, of press, of speech, right? The First Amendment. The, the right to bear arms, to form a militia, the second, To protect us from unreasonable searches, the seizure of our property, the fourth, the right to a fair trial, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the Miranda rights, you have the right to remain silent, right? You have the right to have an attorney, comes right out of the fifth amendment. Uh, The right to not face cruel, unusual punishment, the eighth, the thirteenth, the right for all of us to live free as it abolished slavery, the fifteenth, the nineteenth, the right to not lose our rights on the basis of race, color, or gender, We understand rights. It's part of being a citizen. It's part of being a world citizen. The United Nations, 30 articles on what they call the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So we care about these things. We should care about these things. We should care about when these rights are violated or taken away, right? You think about it, these are the things that kind of governed our families and probably each of our families had a different bill of rights. So here's some in the my Fair family growing up. Mom and dad had the right to be retreated, not retreated, be treated with respect or else. Well, this is like a big deal in our family. The oldest, Monique, she had the right to stay up later than all the other kids. The youngest, Miriam, she had the right to be spoiled. And the rest of us had the right to make her life miserable for being spoiled, right? My dad had the right to the orange lazy boy reclining chair in the living room. And, uh, you know, I would add some rights, like I have the right to control the um, remote control, right? So we, we have these rights. We get it. And what we do with rights is usually this. We hang on to them. We use them. We exercise them. And what Paul's going to ask his friends at Corinth to do and for us to do is something that's very intuitive. It's it's unintuitive. It is not natural. It, it, It requires some extra strength from God to actually do this, to lay them aside, the things that are our rights in Christ. It was causing problems, this whole focus on their rights. So they felt like at Corinth, they had the right to choose whoever they wanted to, to be their guy. So some chose Paul, some Apollos, some Peter. They felt it was their right to fall, to take a Christian who'd wronged them to court. Hey, they wronged me, it's my right to sue them. See justice, they felt it was their right to do with their body as they chose. Their right to withhold marital love from a spouse. They felt like it was their right to pursue marriage and divorce on their terms. And it was busting up the church. Because when we operate out of rights and not love, we end up tearing down the people that we're called to build up. That's what's going on. And Paul's going to make it clear that just because we have the right doesn't make it right to use that freedom. Just because we have the right doesn't make it right. That's, that, that didn't sound right. If we have the right, then of course it's right. And you say, not always, not always. So grab your Bible, 1 Corinthians 8 is where we're at. We're gonna be in 8 and 9 today. Chapter 8 is gonna help us know what it means to live for the sake of the gospel. And it's gonna help us understand that when we're living for the gospel in the relationships in the church, we are willing to set aside rights for our weaker brother for the greater good. So the focus on chapter eight is the weak, people who have a very sensitive conscience about things like food sacrificed to idols. And then chapter nine is gonna be setting aside our rights for the people who are lost, for the people who are far from God, not yet part of God's family. That's where he's going. All right, so first one. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, makes us proud. While love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. That's when our love is complete. When knowledge, our knowledge is complete. When knowledge is accompanied by love. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. And that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, again, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think as it of it as having been sacrificed to a God, and since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. All right, so... Let's just catch up with Corinth, because we're not gonna figure it out for us today in Madison until we get it right. What what was this, how did this work out in Corinth? So in Corinth, you've got this city with all these temples, and they're all in the high spots around the city. And these temples were built to these different gods and goddesses. And the people would go and worship those gods and they would offer sacrifices to those gods so they would be in the good graces of those gods and life would be better for them. And so they took animals and they gave it to the priests and the priests offered it up on the altars as sacrifices to their gods. And then they would get a portion back and they would eat that and the priests would eat that and there was so much food and sacrifice Sacrifice there that they had a food court. So if you weren't going to worship and offer a sacrifice, you could just go to the temple food court and it was good and it was cheap. And if there was too much food to supply those who were offering sacrifices at the priests, and too much food to even supply the food court, well, they just walked it down about 150 yards. That's all the distance it was in Corinth from the temple down to the main street of the marketplace and they sold it in the butcher shops. So he's writing to people at Corinth who many of whom came out of that dark past. And remember there was a lot of immorality, there was a lot of prostitution and so it just didn't feel right for them. When they got around this meat just even the smell of it, the look of it, they're going, oh man, this reminds me of my dark past. It reminds me of all the craziness of what I was involved in when I worshiped these gods. So food does that, right? Have you noticed that? Like it's a, it's a strong memory thing, smell. Have you noticed that? They say it's like one of the strongest. So um, there's, there's some bread. I'm a bread guy. Um, there's some bread in Madison at Madison Sourdough. It's called the Mishh. It's big. Seriously, it's like this big. It's like this. Maybe I exaggerated. Maybe it's only this. It's really good. So you buy that, like a quarter of it, the whole thing, and it's this kind of whole grain wheat sourdough. And because I'm a bread guy, I always do this. And when I smell the mish. It just, it just takes me back. It takes me back to the family, the Weber Bakery in Birsfelden, right next to Basel, Switzerland, and I have all these memories. I, I remember when I was six, and my grandfather woke me up early to go deliver bread in his horse-drawn bread wagon. It was like clickety-clocking through the cobblestone streets of Basel, delivering bread that was like still warm and warm. I mean, it's just like this beautiful, take me back there. This is awesome. Well, for them, the smells and and the sights, it wasn't like, this is, take me back. It was like, oh my gosh. It's taking them back to where they were. This is what's going on here. So his call here is not just to rational categories of thinking. All right, let's just straighten things out. Idols don't mean anything. Food doesn't do anything good or bad for you. That's not where he goes. I mean, he goes there, but he calls them to this radical love whereby they would actually set aside their rights in deference to those weak brothers and sisters who are struggling. Knowledge without love puffs up. And when we're puffed up in pride, we're not thinking about other people around us. He's calling us to be considerate, to be conscious of these things that I'm free to participate in that actually could trip up someone who is following Christ. So we remember this in 1 Corinthians 13, that great passage on love, or we'll get to it soon because this will be a theme he's gonna just come back to and come back to because they're not operating out of love and we'll find out that we do the same thing so often. So in 13.2, we read, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, there it is, but do not have love, I am, what's the word? Nothing. So knowledge without love equals nothing. Zero, Zippo. So he talks about knowledge, about idols. He says they're nothing at all. Verse four, why? Because we know God is one. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4, the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That word one, though, will be used throughout the Old Testament to be an entity that has several parts. And he's going to tell us that this one God that we serve, who is the only true God, exists as creator father, through whom all things come, through whom we live, and through the son, Jesus Christ, through whom all things have come, and through whom we live, and elevating Jesus as God, equal to the father. He has this Trinitarian view of God. You say, well, he didn't say anything about the Spirit here. He doesn't. But he just did in chapter 7, verse 40. He mentions the Spirit 13 times in the opening seven chapters. So the word Trinity, you're not going to find it in the Bible. But the teaching is one God exists in three persons. Hey, these idols, they're not gods. There's only one God. Who is this one God? So just remember what it is, because this has everything to do with people say to us all the time, well, we all believe in the same God. This is what the Bible says. The one God is the creator father, the son, Jesus Christ, the spirit, okay? That God. He goes on food. Hey, just so you know, food's neutral. It's not going to get you closer to God. It's not going to pull you away from God. And having said that, you would think then he'd say, so If there aren't any idols and food doesn't really matter, getting you closer to God or pulling you away from God, then it's all good. You should what? Eat as much of that as you want, especially if it's at a good price. But that's not where he goes. Just because you have the right doesn't make it right. So he focuses on those who have a stronger conscience and calls them to defer and set aside their rights for the good of their brothers and sisters who have a weaker conscience. He's teaching the people at the church who have a weaker conscience, but he doesn't say, now that you have the teaching, give it up, you guys, with the weak conscience and enjoy. Go get your knife sharpened and get your A1 steak sauce and dig in. That's not where he goes. He goes to the strong and he calls them to love. So verse 9 is the warning. Let's reread it again. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Because when we get focused on our freedoms, we move from a place of freedom to actually a place of fault. And though it wouldn't be a sin for us to eat that meat, it becomes a sin when what I do trips up my weaker brother and sister. I sin against them, and because I'm sinning against them and they're united to Christ, I'm sinning against Jesus. And it doesn't matter if we go, yeah, but, but you know, we can do that. And, and, and they're confused on the categories. It doesn't matter that they're weak, and it doesn't matter at all if they don't understand the freedoms that they have, I end up dismantling their faith. So how did it work? So in Corinth, the stronger person who believes that's not, there are no gods but God, and this food isn't a big deal, it's neutral, they go to the food, it's, it's the idea here is they go to the food court of the temple. He's not talking about they go and sacrifice to the idol, that's, that's clear, that's wrong. He says, they go to the temple, and they're just having some good grub up there at the food court. And the other brother or sister in Christ sees you go and goes, man, that's a good guy. She's a godly woman. I'm going to go too. And they go, but man, they're tripped up because it still feels really wrong to them. It feels really wrong. And what you end up doing, what I end up doing at that point is we tear down their faith in Christ. The word is strong, destroy. We destroy. Not that they lose it, but we dismantle it. We're supposed to build it up. And in so doing, we sin against Christ. So his conclusion is, I'm gonna be a vegetarian, right? Verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So, they ask a simple question, can we eat it or not? Paul, dude, we were just like, this was like a yes, no thing. He's good, it's more complicated than that. It's more nuanced than that. That whatever we're doing in life, we need to be mindful of what, how does that impact people around me, especially my weaker brother or sister. And that's a good reminder for those of us in America who have a hard time remembering that we're part of something bigger, that this world isn't just about me. It's just not about my marriage, my family. It's about us. It's about us in the church. So rugged individualism was alive and well in Corinth and long before Corinth. It kind of runs through the fabric of the human heart where we wanna be in control and we think we can take care of life and that's exactly what got it all wrong in the garden when Adam and Eve says, well, God, that was a good idea about the tree, but we think we know better and we're going for it. So what's this have to do with today? So I was talking to my friend Victor after church. Victor's from India. I think there's about 1.5 billion people in India this is, they're, not, they're not thinking about like, what does this have to do with, this is like an American problem. What does this have to do with us today? Because most of the people living around the world are worshiping idols, and they're bringing food as sacrifices. So Victor's telling me, yeah, growing up. You know, the families, my family goes back three generations, he says, but you know, some of our extended family, they weren't Christ followers, and they would have us over for the feast, and they would, they would offer all that food, to their idols. In Hinduism, lots of idols. And but they knew that they wouldn't eat that stuff and so they set it aside. So this, this has all kinds of traction for billions of people around the world. We just, it's just hard for us to catch up with it. Really hard for us to catch up with it. So um, some have pointed out, well, it's becoming an issue, perhaps in our day in the spread of Islam so in Islam, there's called halal food. It's, halal means permitted. It's like kosher for the Jews. For halal food, uh, for food to be halal, permitted, it needs to be uh, like butchered by, if it's meat, butchered by a Muslim who prays over it. Allah is great, Allah is great, Allah is great in Arabic. Allahu Akbar. And so they go, well, that's, that, that meat actually was offered up to Allah, and um, I'm in a church now where there are these people who are coming out of, brothers and sisters coming out of Muslim, Islam, and so that could be an issue. I haven't run into it, but I just read about it and go, huh, I hadn't thought about that. So in our culture, it gets a little trickier because we don't have a lot of this right before us. We're not, you didn't go. Like, I got some really nice steaks the other day, and I wasn't thinking, hmm, Hmm, I was just going, man, they look good. And I'm going to enjoy those steaks. I, did, I just didn't think, we just don't think about it. So here, here are some things that we could think about. Um, alcohol. In fact, this is actually one of those areas where even people who aren't Christians, we do this. Like So alcohol for people, I just got up with a friend. He says, oh yeah, you talked about my, uh, my God, my little brown bottle God today. Yeah, alcohol was his God. That's what he turned to. So he, he comes to faith in Christ, and I don't have a problem with alcohol. I, I've, I've never been drunk, so it's not a big deal for me to enjoy a glass of wine. But my buddies come out of that, I'm sensitive to that. Now that, if you think about it, those kinds of sensitivities exist in our day, whether they're tied to Christianity or not, right? So we have a friend, a family member who's a recovering alcoholic. And if they're our spouse, like we don't bring alcohol in the house because we don't want to trip them up. We don't want to send them in a spiral, So alcohol could be kind of one of those, okay, I kind of get it. When Paul talks about this very concept in, in chapters 14 and 50 of Romans, he'll talk about food, he talks about drink, and he talks about special days, meaning Sabbaths. So some of these things that prick our conscience goes back to what we were into before Jesus. Some of the stuff that pricks our conscious are the things that we inherited when we came to Jesus, because we heard some things like this. If you're on with Jesus, you got to understand that Jesus is the son of God and place your full trust in him. And then here's the list. Make sure you don't do that. So I grew up in a home where there were some do's and don'ts about special days like the Sabbath, which would be the Lord's day in the New Testament, Sunday. Man, that was like a really special deal. Like we went to church, we had a big family meal, we took a family walk, boring, we took a family nap. Are you kidding? Now, it's not weird, but everybody was sent to their room. (laughs) And that was even more boring. Like, can I just go play? Mm -hmm. Can I just watch TV? Most of the time, no. It's like, okay, so, all right. So that's, this is what it means to be a Christian. We go to church on Sunday. That's a good thing, right? Bible talks about that. Um, we share a meal together. That's a good thing. We, we don't do these things. We do these things. And so, uh, you know, like you could never wash the car. That's a Saturday job. You never mow the lawn. No way. You can't do that. I mean, my dad was a complete work crazy guy, working hours and hours and hours, but never on Sunday. So that's why how I grow up. I got a weak conscience because I'm a Christian and I drive by on Sunday and dude, you're mowing the lawn. What are you doing? Don't you know this is Sunday? You see what's going on? So the weaker concept, that that tender conscience could be associated back with pagan worship, with worship of that which is not Christ, or it actually could be part of the Jesus plus thing that I that I. That I got because we're we're not just saved from we're saved to and a lot of us were saved to legalism which isn't the gospel which isn't the gospel so um the easy thing is to just go to legalism and just live in all the things we can't do and and the the other easy thing is to go it's all good I'm in Christ I can do everything this is awesome And if I do something that I shouldn't have done, he's so gracious and merciful and forgiveness. Those two extremes, easy place to live. Right here in the middle, that's a lot harder. This whole thing about, oh, I've got to be thinking about what I'm pursuing here in light of how it could impact people that are believers, like my own family, my friends in the life group, the people I'm serving in ministry to as I go cross-culturally, those people, oh, that's a lot harder. So, uh, last night, Bob, one of the pastors here, Bob Robinson, said, oh, you know, that's interesting because when I grew up, I grew up as a missionary kid in Congo, and when we showed up in Congo, all the missionary women, they had jewelry. Of course they had jewelry. They had watches, and they had necklaces, and they had earrings, and they had wedding bands on, and they found out this was highly offensive to the women in Congo because all of that jewelry was associated with their worship before Christ. And so guess what the women did, the missionaries? They took it all off, including the wedding band. Because they didn't want to trip them up. They wanted to build them up. That's what he's talking about. So now he goes from eight to nine. And what he does in nine, is he starts getting the focus on the lost, not just the weak. He's going to use himself as an illustration of an apostle with rights and how he sets aside those rights. So, verses 1 and 2, he makes the claim that he's an apostle. How can he make that claim? He says, well, you're, you're the seal of my apostleship. I's the guy, I'm the guy who was commissioned with a message by Christ, the good news, and your lives have been changed by it. You're living proof that I'm an apostle. I'm the guy, remember, the only guy who was caught up in a vision, and I met Christ, saw Christ, received revelation from Christ after he ascended into heaven. Nobody else has had that. I'm an apostle. So I have rights, Verse 3. And four and five and six, I have rights to food and drink. Just like the other preachers that come in and people pay them with produce and drink, right? Wine. He says, I have the right to a wife. Just like all the others have a right. Like Jesus' brothers have wives, the apostles have wives. I have the right to a wife. And I have the right, he says, to be paid for what I'm doing as a gospel worker. And then he grounds those rights into the stuff of this world he says now think about it this is going down in verses seven and following think about it. soldiers get paid think about the the farmer he's like working his vineyard doesn't he get to to share in the produce the grapes of course he does how about the how about the guy who's tending his flock doesn't that doesn't that shepherd get to drink the milk yeah he does well what about in the word what does the word say Quoting Deuteronomy 25.4, he says, hey, remember what the word says? The word says, don't muzzle the ox when it's threshing and preparing the harvest to be taken in. Don't muzzle the ox. Let the, let the ox as it's going around and around this threshing wheel, let, let, let him partake of that. And he says, by the way, God wasn't just concerned about the ox and the oxen. He was compared, concerned about the people who are working hard in the harvest fields that they should share in that. So if it's true for the soldier, if it's true for the farmer, if it's true for the shepherd, if it's true for all these things written in the word of God, if it's true for the the priests and the Levites who serve at the temple, if it's true for Jesus' followers that he sends out and he says, hey, the worker deserves his wages, then hey, it's true for me too. I'm an apostle. I have rights. I have the right to be paid. And so you think, okay, I know where this is going. He's going to do something like this. Guys, you're killing me. I've been working as a tent maker, working all day so I could support the work of the gospel. And you guys haven't given me a nickel. And you know what? Quite frankly, I would like to focus solely on telling people about Jesus. So share some love. Would you send me some money? Could you, you know... Send a check, please. That's not where he goes. Look at verse 12, chapter 9. If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. He didn't want to hinder the gospel of Christ for those who are far from Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? In the same way, the Lord Jesus has commanded, Luke 10, 7 is a good cross reference if you want to write it in there. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But look at this, verse 15. But I have not used any of these rites. He hears his example. Not any of those rites. The food and the drink. The spouse being paid, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I'm not writing for a check, for a love offering, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So I was like, oh, I didn't know you were going there. That's where he went. He says, I, I, don't, I, I don't want to hinder God. Well, how would he hinder the gospel by being paid? You guys pay my salary. How's that hinder the gospel? In Corinth, not in Philippi, because in Philippi, he let him do that. But in Corinth, he was concerned that people would think his motivations are off, that he's doing what he's doing out of greed, not out of love. And so as not to hinder the gospel's message, he takes money out of play so that they would not get tripped up by the messenger and hear the life transforming message. See that? He's going to have to work a lot harder as a tent maker to cover the expenses of the ministry that he was called to. So, But it wasn't just about this whole thing about motive that he took out of play. He, 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 he answers this whole question about grace and the gospel and he made sure that there was nothing about how he lived or presented the gospel that hindered them as well and this has huge traction for us, for your friends. So let me ask a question. The friends that you have that know Jesus is important in your life, but they're not on with Jesus. Your friends far from God that know you have a relationship with God. How, how do they see that relationship? Is it defined like my Sundays were with do's and don'ts? Do they... Think of your faith as more of a religious that's defined by practices that you do or don't. Or do they look at you and go, you know, there's something, this, this, this gal, she, this woman, this guy, he's, he's, got, he like, he's got a relationship with God. Is it marked by grace or is it, is, it, is it marked by works? Is it drawing them in or is it actually setting up these blocks where they go, oh, I don't know. I mean, some of us, we just talk about politics all the time. And maybe they're thinking, oh, I think I get it. If you're going to be on with God, you need to be a, usually, Republican, conservative. Is that, is that what they think? My friends, your friends. So now he gets into this whole thing about, I don't want to set up barriers that make it hard and prevent people from hearing about this transforming message of the gospel. So he's into contextualizing. So he talks about in 19 through 23, he says, so here's how I go about my gospel ministry. He says, when I'm around Jewish people, people who are Jews, people who are under the law, he says, I I behave like I'm a Jew, like I'm under the law. I'm not under the law. Christ set me free from the law. That's not what brings me to God. That reminds me that I need a savior because I break the law. But I'm gonna be like a Jew when I'm around the Jew. In other words, I'm not gonna go stick it in their face and say, oh, I'm free in Christ and I can eat pork. Watch this. And start pulling out some pulled pork and having a big old juicy sandwich. No, I'm going to be sensitive to them because I, I don't want to offend them and prevent them from hearing the gospel. When I'm around Gentiles, I'm not going to say, hey, I'm, I'm going I'm to be like a Gentile and exercise my freedoms in Christ. So I can't have that pork sandwich and I'm not going to freak out if they, if they give me, you know, some great pork ribs today. I'm going to go, it's all good. I'm not going to make that the big deal. And when I'm around the weak, I'm gonna behave like the weak. And so if they've got a tender conscience about food sacrifice to idols, then guess what, me too. I don't eat that stuff. Why, to win, he says it five times, to win as many as possible, to win, to win, to win, to win. To win them to what, to Christ, a relationship with Christ. He says, that's my reward. And, and, And that's what it's done in my life, completely changed my life. So I don't need to be paid to share the gospel. I'm compelled. You can't stop me. And whether he's in stocks in prison or in front of a king, he is always telling people about Jesus. And he knows it's going to get him beat up. He knows it's going to get him stoned. He knows it's going to get him threatened. He knows it means it's going to be a lot of heartache. But that is his driving goal, to win as many as possible. So like an athlete, and they knew all about athletes with the Isthmian Games, held right there in Corinth he says I discipline myself for that goal and that's what I'm chasing so verse 24 do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize run in such a way as to get the prize everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training they do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever therefore I don't I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And the prize and the crown isn't riches in heaven. It's people. He says to the church at Philippi, chapter 4, verse 1, Hey, guys, you're my joy you're a parent, we get that. Our kids, it's our joy. Relationships, you're my joy. And then he says, and you're my crown. You're my reward. And so we, we, we come full circle here, and we go, all right, so what does this have to do with us today? So chapter eight's asking me these questions. Is there anything in my walk with God where I'm exercising freedoms in Christ, it's actually a tripping point. Do I even think about what I'm free to do relative to other people in my life? Would I even have a clue about someone who has a weak conscience about something? Have I even considered that? To my shame, I go, not. I, all the people I know around me, I can't, I can't think of that. And I'm not convinced it's because nobody has that. I just haven't thought about that. Romans says, if we have a weak conscience, you go, yeah, that's, that's me. Well, don't judge those who, who don't have a weak conscience. Don't judge. Chapter 9 asks me this question. So, Mark, what are you chasing? What's your prize? Is it comfort? comfort? Is, is it the applause of people? Is it you leave some kind of legacy that makes... You a more significant. What, what, what are you chasing? He says there, there's, there's two things that you're going to chase. One that brings this little sprig of greenery, this, this crown that said gold medal. There's only one. You're the, you're, you're the, you're the, you're the champ. But it's, it's made out of a branch. It's going to last a few days, a few weeks, and then what? You just toss it. He said, or you can actually be about stuff that lasts forever. And so that's a great question. So am I chasing the stuff that lasts forever? The the only stuff that lasts forever is the stuff that's connected to the gospel and to Jesus Christ and transforms lives. Where have I lost my way? Have I lost my way because I'm more concerned about what I should be able to enjoy, what my rights are? He's asking hard questions. Really important questions. In your small groups, you're you're gonna ask and wrestle with this. Where do we need wisdom to be all things to all people in order to win our family and friends who don't know Christ to Jesus? That's gonna be a really important, important discussion to have. And then finally, chapter nine says, Mark, does the gospel in and of itself compel you to preach Or is it like that's something you're supposed to do because you're a pastor? I mean, do do I have to talk about the gospel or do I feel like I, I should talk about? Is it like I can't help? Like when I fell in love with Lori and I went home at Christmas break, that's all I could talk about was Lori Peterson. That's all I could talk about. Paul's life has been radically changed. He was on his way to go murder and enchain and persecute a bunch of Christians on his way to Damascus, and he meets Jesus, and the murderer becomes a guy who's willing to give up his life and suffer all kinds of beatings because his life was radically changed. And I wonder if the good news has become old news. And the reason I'm not living like this for the sake of the gospel is because it doesn't grip me anymore. It's old news. I forgot that I still need the gospel. Oh, I thought I just needed that on the the way in. I need it today because I'm a mess, and without Christ, I am nothing, and I have nothing. Does the gospel compel me? Does it compel us? Or is it just like, yeah, if we could get there, that'd be great. For the sake of the gospel, may we love the weak, and reach the lost, giving up things for the greater good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the one who gave up your rights as we go to the table right now. We remember that, the bread and the cup. You're the creator God. You were with God from the beginning. You are God. And all things came into being through you. Without you, nothing in this world would come to be. You were awesome. You were in heaven surrounded by the angels who brought you praise. And you gave up your rights and took on human flesh and became a servant though you are the Lord of the universe. You washed, washed smelly disciples' feet for the greater good. You mounted the cross for me, for us. And we just repent of all that's selfish in us and self-centered in us and all that's grabbing stuff for ourselves. And we pray that you'd have mercy and forgive us and that you would fill us with your spirit that we would give our life for others even as you've done for us. Help us to be about things that are eternal. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.